Welcome back, everyone. I am Brian McCall, the Editor-in-Chief of Catholic Family News. Happy to bring you another special report. And today I'm joined by a, a very prominent guest, Dr. Robert Royal, uh, who is, uh, after receiving degrees from Brown University and the Catholic University of America, uh, has uh, gone on to publish uh, many books, too many to recite. Uh, we take up much, too much of our time. Uh, is also the president and founder of uh, the Faith and Reason Institute, which many of our readers probably know, uh, publishes daily, I believe, uh, uh, information and articles on the Catholic faith. Uh, so welcome, uh, Dr. Royal, and thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you, Brian. Uh, today, uh, we're, we're going to be speaking about a, a book uh, which is being published by uh, Sophia Press, and it is a, really a very appropriate book given what's been going on in our country uh, this year. Here you can see it. It's called um, Columbus and the Crisis of the West. Uh, and uh, it's really a, a fascinating book, very easy to read. I'd, I'd uh, uh, recommend uh, to everyone to take a look at it. Uh, and I say appropriate in our time because as many of our viewers and listeners know, uh, in this tumultuous summer of uh, disorder, uh, one of the things we've seen is a real attack on history and particularly symbols of history. Uh, many monuments have come under attack, including San Luis and St. Louis, but also monuments of Christopher Columbus. Uh, and uh, this, this book, this study, is really very timely in that respect as our society kind of engages in this sort of strange euthanasia, in many ways, I'd say, of our, our history. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about the book, and I understand it's kind of a, a, a further project from a project you did in 1992 on the anniversary of the, uh, I know it's a charged word, the discovery of, of America by Columbus, but kind of what brought you to that original project and then why did you decide to release this book uh, this year? Well, this all started uh, in a crazy way. God has a way of leading us into things we don't think we're gonna get engaged in. But I, I wrote a long review essay in First Things Magazine back in 1991 about a book called The Conquest of Paradise. Now you can tell from just the title of that book. That the, and the Europeans came in and conquered it. Now we know that there's a history of ill treatment of indigenous peoples and whatnot. But I knew that the European side of that was wrong. And that's been cited over and over again, that Europe was this very needy, broken down continent, and it had to go look in search of wealth and whatnot elsewhere, which is false, because in 1492, Michelangelo was alive, Raphael was alive, the Renaissance was alive in Europe, and Europe was actually you know, an expansive. What I didn't know all that much about was, were the particulars of Columbus, and then, of course, the history of the indigenous peoples in the New World themselves. And so, after I wrote, wrote this long essay, people, I think including Father Richard John Newhouse, who was then the editor of uh, uh, First Things, said, you have to write a book about this because no one else is going to do it. And I did, and it was extremely successful. I gave a lecture at Princeton University on October 12, 1992, on the 50th, uh, 500th anniversary of the discovery or the encounter, whatever we want to call it. Uh, something that couldn't happen today <laughs> because uh, no university would want to take the risk and have to pay the, the insurance to have someone like me and I'd be shouted down and canceled anyway. But look, this is a fascinating subject and I wrote this book, I 
wrote a book then, and I, I actually rewrote this book and added over 150 pages and freshened up the scholarship and then addressed some of the new controversies that are going on right now. And I think that, as I kind of just outlined it, it's gotten much worse. It was hard to talk about a more balanced approach back in 1992. Today, it's become almost impossible. Mm. And I think it's it's interesting, touching on what you said, that these sort of uh, swings in, in the way we view these things. What came across to me in reading the approach to the book very much reminds me of what Aristotle tells us about, about virtue, right? that there are sort of two extremes for every virtue that we need to be on guard against and we pull towards. And uh, it seems to be the case in sort of both sides of the Atlantic here, right? The indigenous cultures, there's a sort of, uh, you know, extreme idealization, as you said, paradise. There was just this wonderful paradise of noble savages who were peace-loving, had no diseases, and were wonderful. And then the other side of, well, they were just all, you know, didn't have any civilization, and Europeans brought everything to them, and they had nothing. And then likewise with Columbus, right? He's either, throughout the past few histories, he's either a saint who should be canonized, as some argued at a certain point, or this horrible, evil oppressor. And that, that in many ways, the, the truth on both of those issues uh, is it neither of those places? Do, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I want to make clear to the viewers that this is not an entire defense of Columbus. The way mm. you know, we have this tendency to be either for or against somebody these days. You can't cancel somebody because they're terrible, or you you want to build them up as as if they have no flaws. All the actors in the, these circumstances were human beings, as we are, which is to say that um, they're glorious things about them and their cultures on both sides. There are terrible things about them and their cultures on both sides. And I think once we recognize that, then we step back from uh, this, I think, virtually suicidal impulse that's now emerged in the West. The, the crisis of the West, in my title, is precisely the, the way that we're using Western principles to sort of deny our own history, as if we, we, can, we can make judgments without that deep those deep truths that we get out of the Bible, that we're all created in the image and likeness of God, for example, or out of Aristotle or the best in, in classical thought and, and much else that exists in the West. Once we begin to lose that, on what basis are we going to be able to make um, temperate and proper judgments of truth? The, the truth doesn't have to be that one side or the other is perfect. The truth has to be the historical truth and then an effort to take that truth and see what it can help us to understand about us today. So maybe we can just explore, I mean, as a teaser for the book, right, Good not to reveal too much, but explore two of the issues you touch on in the book um, that, that may help people to understand the kind of work you're doing. So let's take the first one, um, one about the myth around Columbus and the myth that grew up that uh, Columbus argued and was this great champion uh, to argue that the world is spherical, the world is round, when everybody for thousands of years, for basically all of human history, thought the earth was flat. And again, I... I remember when I first read Dante in uh, college, uh, when I took the class and I started reading and I said, wait, how could Dante write this? Because I thought everybody thought the world was flat before Columbus and this is 200 years before. And I remember that just occurring to me, my grade school education. That's, we had little songs the nuns taught us about Columbus teaching everybody the world was around. So, so what about that, a little bit about that issue and how do you sort of debunk that myth? Yeah, and Greeks already knew that the Earth was spherical. That knowledge was never really lost. In fact, there's someone who, who wrote a history of this controversy 
who said that it was both round and flat. I call it the pizza theory. So <laughs> you can get both of them in there and re reconcile. But look, Columbus would never have set out sailing west across the Atlantic if he thought the earth was flat. And he, he never tried to prove the earth was round. That, that was no part of his intention. He did believe, wrongly, that the distance was shorter across the Atlantic than the experts who told him and told the, the Spanish king and queen that it was too long for him to sail. I sometimes think he knew that, but he also took a chance that maybe there was something else that he would encounter, which of course he did. And that's mm -hmm. why we're all here today. But um, the interesting thing about him, I, I believe, is that he felt inspired by God, that, that there was some calling, that he, that he had been given this inspiration to do this thing, not to prove the earth was wrong, but to, to sail west. And I, I often wonder why he thought that. He quotes all sorts of, of prophecies from the Bible, and, and he reads mm -hmm. histories and geographies, and, and he's in correspondence with mathematicians. But he felt inspired to do this, and it's quite a sincere thing, I, I believe. And it may very well be that God inspired him to do something that he didn't know what he was doing, but it isn't the first time that God inspired some of us to set out and do something that, in fact, achieved something else other than we, we thought we were going to do. So that part of the, 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 the myth is simply, it's a concoction of later people who wanted to say that the mid, Middle Ages were benighted and people in Spain in particular were... Were, were, uh, didn't follow science. Actually, they, the experts followed the science, as we say today. And it was Columbus who wanted to push beyond what was known at the time. Well, picking up on something you just said there, um, you know, many of the critics of Columbus, when it's argued, well, look, he, he had a, a noble intention. He wanted to bring the truth of Christianity to lands that hadn't heard it. Um, and, and again, maybe some other, other goals to advance, uh, advance the cause of Christianity. What do you say to the critics who say, is just try to dismiss that and say, oh, look, he also, he was out for honors. He negotiated with the monarchs to get these titles. He was looking for, you know, financial success. That they sort of just say that those other motives, which, you know, maybe arguments were also present, just somehow eradicate any other noble motives. Yeah. Well, look, we live in a materialistic age, and so we assume that any motives are the, other than material motives are probably a cover for the material motives is the way I would put it. But um, when I was young, at least, we used to hear this phrase about Columbus that he sailed for God, gold, and glory. Now he certainly was sailing for gold. Um, what he expected to do was set up a trading post in a very ancient culture. He thought you know, he, would, he would land there and as it happened in other parts of the Mediterranean and Africa, they would, they would have a trading post. Well, that didn't come about because of the lack of products and gold and whatnot in the Caribbean. He wanted the glory, as you rightly say, that he wanted titles, and he became Admiral of the Ocean Sea as a result of this unprecedented ability to sail across the Atlantic and, and return. It was fairly easy to go out into the middle of the Atlantic to, to come back was the, the key, and he knew the winds and he figured out things that no one else had figured before. But on the God side, we know that it's not only that he assembled lists of prophecies and he kind of felt inspired, but he said that he felt the hand of God on him to do this. Now, here's where some people begin to say, well, wait a minute, you know, did God actually personally talk to Columbus and tell him to do this? He believed, and I think in, in deep sincerity, uh, and this was part of the late medieval kind of uh, new age, if we want to put it that way, idea, that the gospel had to be preached to all nations before Christ could come again, before the second coming. Occurred. 
Now, whatever we may think about that now, that was a, a strong part of um, the part of the Franciscans. And Columbus was probably a third order Franciscan, right? At least toward the end of his life, he seems to. Um, there, there was a, Joachim of Fiore, who was a, a preacher of the third age of the Holy Spirit and influenced a lot of people who were called Joachimites uh, toward the end of the, the, the high middle ages. He believed that there was going to be this third um, period. There was the period of God the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and then there was going to be this outpouring of the Spirit. I think Columbus kind of belonged to that. But at a more practical level, I mean, if we're looking for evidence, not only the, the writings that I, I've cited so far, we know a very interesting fact that in, in his wills toward the end of his life, and you know, he would revise his wills just as people do today, we know that he always kept a, a clause in there that designated part of his funds that were kept at the St. George's Bank in Genoa, designated that for the freeing of the Holy Land from the Muslims. That too had a long history of the Crusades and, and whatnot. The, it, it, uh, Constantinople finally fell in 1453, which is about 40 years before Columbus sailed. People wanted to see the, the Middle East freed from, from Muslims. Whatever we think about that in these days. A man who leaves money for after he's going to be alive for the purpose of Christians being able again to travel to the Holy Land, I think we have to say, even if we're going to apply materialistic criteria, He's put his money where his mouth is, and I think that's a pretty convincing argument that his religiosity was substantial. So maybe if we switch over to the other side of the Atlantic and uh, deal with, again, one of the other topics you, you confront, uh, and that is the, the, the modern argument made by some that Christianity sort of promoted slavery and brought slavery to the New World. And again, contrary to, as I think Hilaire Belloc proves in the Servile State, it was Christianity that essentially eliminated slavery gradually over time from Europe. Right. But, but kind of this myth that, uh, you know, slavery as this evil institution was introduced into this pristine world that had never thought of it before. Well, look, indigenous peoples were human beings like us. And so slavery was widespread. Patriarchy was widespread, if we want to use a modern term. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Caribs, in, who give their name to the Caribbean, who were cannibals, kidnapped actually so many women from the Taino tribes that Columbus initially was engaged with, that the women in the, the Carib villages actually spoke the language of the Tainos because they were all sequestered together and there were so many of them that it was just easier for them to speak a different language. Look, slavery existed everywhere in the world. Uh, you're right to say that gradually and slowly it was removed through the influence of Christianity, beginning with the Spaniards, by the way. Mm. Um, Bartolomé de las Casas, a friend of Columbus's, who defends him and says his intentions were good. He, he didn't always act well because he didn't always know what, what he was doing or how he ought to do it. But he defended the Indians, began to, um, he convinced the Spanish monarchs to pass laws to defend the indigenous peoples, uh, influenced the, the writing of an encyclical by Pius III, who, who uh, said that the Indians should not be enslaved or mistreated, they should be converted by an example of holy living. That was already begin to, beginning to happen very early after the Spaniards arrived in the New World. And in histories of international law, in fact, the influence of Las Casas, the influence of Francisco Vitoria, who was a Thomist at the University of Salamanca, who developed 
sort of international principles for how, how people should be respected and cultures should be respected. In the, even the secular histories of international law, those things are quite prominent. In terms of the actual uh, um, uh, shutting down of the transatlantic slave trade and the, um, the, the and, uh, and slavery, it's, it's later Protestantism, mostly Methodists and Quakers, uh, British or English speaking, Methodists and Quakers, but the, the Christianity plays an enormous role. And we must also remember that it's Christianity that frees peop the peoples in the New World from what um, Leo XIII at the 400th anniversary called evil rights. Anyone who's read the history of, of Aztecs or the Incas or even some of the earlier peoples, the Olmecs and the Toltecs, the, the enormous numbers of people who were sacrificed to the gods it's just, it's astonishing, actually. There's a Mexican novelist, Carlos Fuentes, who is no great friend of Christianity or the United States, who once said that we have to imagine the astonishment of the tens and hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples who, when Christianity arrived, were told that they didn't have to sacrifice them, uh, themselves to this God, but this God had come on earth and sacrificed himself for human beings. It's a Copernican revolution in religiosity and one that's little appreciated now because people don't think that Christian uh, evangelization matters much. And that's because they're enjoying many of the rights and, and, and the goods that, that uh, Christianity has been able to bring all of us. And uh, I, I think it's, I can't remember if you mentioned this fact um, in, in, your, in your book, but I've always been surprised. You mentioned international law. I've been surprised in, in international law courses when I was students we talk about the discovery doctrine and they think oh that means the european said well whoever discovers the land gets to steal all the land and not at all as it was formulated by the church the discovery doctrine was who's ever the first there has the exclusive right to negotiate a treaty or or a purchase with the indigenous peoples found there so again i'm just always amazed every year when i, I in those courses when students you know, don't believe it. You know, we actually show them the documents. They say, no, 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 that must have been that you could just take it. It's said, no, that's not actually, and again, there are people that break the law, right, and don't do what the law says, but that the, the discovery doctrine in international law was a right of first negotiation with the people by being the first people there. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned that explicitly in the book, but th there are yes. related uh, concepts that you find in Las yes. Casas and in Vitoria, yes. and of course those guys knew quite well that people, if you gave them an opening, they would misuse even you know, the very limited um, rights that you say to them that you know people are not cultivating a field or whatever it is, and you're not you're not disturbing other people. You have a right to to uh, develop it as you, as you want. Now you know, in fact, because of the distances involved and because of some of the bad apples who crossed the Atlantic thinking they were going to get rich quick, uh, unfortunately, it didn't develop the way it could have. But we don't, I mean, we don't judge individuals. I hope we don't judge one another, even those of us who are alive now, by the worst things that we do, unless we are really thoroughly bad human beings. And we know that a figure like Columbus, to judge from Las Casas' description of him, was not, was not that at all. I, that's, there may be other people. I think, I think of Pizarro, who was really quite a nasty, uh, almost psychopath, who, who destroyed the Incan culture in, in Peru and, and, and further south. Columbus is not that. If, if any misdeeds, if he got harsh toward the Indians, he's also harsh toward the Spaniards because he didn't really, he wasn't good at, at running an operation on land. He was good, good on shipboard, but not very good on land. 
So maybe I just I have two really two questions and we'll kind of wrap it up. First, uh, from your vast, clearly vast research uh, on Columbus, on his life, do you have, is there any particular story about Columbus or his life or his voyages that you, you'd like to share that you think is a... Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that people neglect about him, because in this kind of mocking anti-Western mood that we've had for several decades now, they say, you know, he didn't know where he was going. He didn't get where he wanted to be. He didn't, you know, succeed in doing. And so why do we honor him? He didn't even know what he was doing. Well, that's not quite true because among the many achievements is that he brought the world together. My, my friend, Cardinal George, you know, late uh, Cardinal George of Chicago used to say that he was very impressed by the photographs from space that showed that we're all in one world. Well, I think you could make the case that it's Columbus and those voyages who really did bring together the whole world. Whatever problems uh, arrived, uh, there were also great benefits now that the, all the peoples of the world were in contact with, with one another finally. And another aspect of him is people don't realize how intuitively scientific he was. I mentioned earlier how he was the first one who really understood that the southern winds in the Atlantic would take you west. And that if you went, you went more uh, on a more northerly route, there were winds that went in the opposite direction so you could actually get back. And both of those things were important. We don't really know how he knew that, but somehow he intuited. He also, when he got to the, the Caribbean, his compasses didn't look right to him. And he intuited <laughs> the very primitive scientific knowledge of the time. He intuited that the, the magnetic field of the earth wasn't uniform, that it, it somehow was off when he got there. And it's true. Mm. He also, when he was sailing the coast of, of uh, Venezuela, he realized that the earth bulges at that point. I mean, modern scientific, the, the earth isn't a perfect ball. You know, it, mm -hmm. it bulges in places, it's lower in places. And he, he intuited that. So just in terms of what we would regard as modern scientific and empirical uh, discoveries, that's a lot for a human being to have understood uh, with very simple scientific instruments that he had at the time. And the fact that he was... Look, he had this this uh, this genius about him. He had this inspiration about him, and he had this stick to about him. This, this perseverance. Some people think it's obsession, but you couldn't do what he did unless you were partly obsessed. To um, to, to do anything great really does require kind of a, an ability to stay with it, no matter what kinds of obstacles that you find. And so he was able to do that. So I think he sets an amazing example, and the fact that there, there was a, a serious religious um, um, element in all this that he's doing as well. Um, I'm, I, you know, I sum this up. I, I often say this when I talk on the subject. If we're going to blame him for everything that's gone wrong in the last 500 years, can he get at least a little credit for the many, many good things that went right that we're all benefiting from at this time? Uh, very, very good. I mean, to put it into into uh, those terms. And it's interesting when, to follow up what you just said. I mean, it really says he's, he's a good example of the principle that obviously you'd agree with given the Faith and Reason Institute, that religious conviction, right, deep religious conviction is not and, and never has to be an obstacle to being a good scientist, right? Because you talked about his deep faith and his belief that God had something important for him to do, but yet he clearly, as you described, is someone who is a good scientist of his day, who's rooted in the science as it's been handed down, but who doesn't just accept it, you know, as it is, he is sort of pushing to thinking, okay, where can I correct this? Where, where is there more? And, and, and clearly, test it. And test it, yes. But so clearly his faith was not 
like so many wonderful scientists that we often don't hear about through history, like Mendelssohn, you know, their faith was not a hindrance, but was a, a really an aid to being the best scientist they can. Um, so I guess maybe a final question, because we're gonna this uh, will be airing on uh, October the twelfth. Uh, actually, we have a our youngest son uh, was born on October twelfth, and I remember his my my in laws uh, asked if we were going to name him Christopher. I think that's the, the day he was born, but uh, uh, his name is Michael actually. But uh, uh, but so on October twelfth, the day which historically for for some time at least in this country has been a day dedicated to uh, talking about and honoring Columbus uh, as the day when he. He first uh, came to, to land here in, in this part of the globe. So maybe a controversial question, but do you think do you think a day like that is appropriate? Is it is it is it appropriate? Should we have uh, given he's a complex figure, as you said, like all historical figures, he's got greatness but also weakness. Do you think it's something someone that we should be honoring in a way uh, once a year on on this day? You know, another interviewer asked me a question I had not thought about myself. He said, is this a hill for, for Catholics worth dying on? It, it set me back for a second, but then I said, yes, absolutely. Because look, first of all, even leaving the symbolic portions aside, mm -hmm. because he's really bearing the sins of the West and of Christianity right now. He's, he's being made the scapegoat for um, even laying that symbolic part aside, he simply is factually the beginning of us as the Americans. And so if you want to qualify that and, and say, you know, this or that part of his legacy is not great, that's wonderful, but let's celebrate what was great. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I have to say, I'm a little perturbed that in a lot of places, in my county in Virginia too, Columbus Day is being replaced with Indigenous Peoples Day. I have no I have nothing against mm -hmm. celebrating what was good in indigenous cultures, as long as we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But th this crisis of the West that I talk about in the book, I think demonstrates itself in terms of this holiday, because we don't need to cancel Columbus to celebrate indigenous peoples. We could have an indigenous people's day or, you know, all people lives matter day or whatever it's going to be and mm -hmm. add to our heritage. We, we don't, we don't have to cancel part of our heritage in order to to uh, begin to include another part that perhaps was not sufficiently appreciated or was maybe even shunned in the past. When, when we start excluding portions of the past because for whatever reason this is, we're, we're not expanding ourselves, we're actually contracting ourselves and putting ourselves, I think, quite dangerously in a position of having no really deep roots to a civilization that will enable us to take what has been good in the past and move forward. Well, excellent. And, and again, I hope this conversation has interested our, our viewers and listeners. Uh, again, for those watching, uh, here is the uh, website where you can uh, purchase the book. Uh, again, it's, pro it's being published by Sophia Institute Press by Robert Royal, Columbus and the Crisis of the West. And it is really, best way to describe it is, it's not a biography of Columbus, although it has elements of that. It's a book on Columbus, but in that context of this uh, very relevant uh, to our time, crisis in the West, the crisis of coming to terms with our own history and with, with who we are. Uh, so uh, highly recommended to our viewers and listeners. And I want to thank you, Dr. Royal, for taking time uh, to, to share with us and uh, explain a bit, uh, as much as we can in a half an hour, about, about your project. So thank you. Well, thank you, Brian. Enjoyed it. All right. And uh, for, if you've enjoyed our podcast and video, please share it and uh, like it and send it to your contacts. And if you've enjoyed our free content, 
Remember, you can subscribe to our monthly periodical Catholic Family News at our website, catholicfamilynews.com. Thank you. It is